morning, everyone. It is so lovely to see your faces today. Thank you for coming. And uh, actually, it is so good to be here. It's so, so good to be here. Even as Dave said, on a comrade's morning, it's so good to be in the house of God. Now, I had I'd played with the idea, two ideas this morning. First one was to come in my running gear, but that would be hypocritical of me because I hate running. <laughs> I really, really don't like it. The only race I'm running is the race for Jesus, and, uh, and, that's, and that's it. Because, uh, and Kate can definitely testify that that is true. I thought the second thing that I might love to do, just to make this morning a little bit more interactive and visual, was I thought, I wonder what these people in the story of Ruth were wearing. I thought of like going and hiring like a really cool looking shawl thing and, and then wondering why having like barley bits lying all over. And I just thought I'd get in big trouble with the people who clean the church. There are barley grains everywhere. That would not be the thing. So it is just, this is what you've got. And it is so great to be gathering around God's word together. And if you didn't know, I mean, I feel like we have been introduced to it, but we are in the second week of a series through this book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And last week, Nick opened up Ruth chapter one beautifully, opened it up and walked us through and gave us some really big pieces. And so I thought, what I thought I would do is just remind us of a couple of those things before we then go into Ruth chapter two, which we're going to walk systematically through piece by piece. Is that good? You with me? Awesome. So first thing is this, the story of Ruth is a zooming in, zooming out book. We zoom in to the life of Israel and God's people, specifically around a family, specifically around this person, Ruth, this person, Naomi, this person, Boaz. And we zoom in there, but we also zoom out. There's a big picture that's going on. And so what's the big picture? What's the big idea perhaps of the book of Ruth or Ruth chapter two? I think it's this idea of providence. Uh, providence, you would have heard Chris pray it earlier. It's this word that we don't hear very often, but I was looking up for a meaning for the word providence, and the one that I came across that I loved the most was the care and the control of God, that actually life is under the care and under the control of God. That's what providence means. And I thought that was a really beautiful way of framing what we look at in the book of Ruth, because we will see all through its pages the care and the control of life that God takes in order to outwork his plans and his good and pleasing and perfect will. Ephesians 1 verses 11 tells us it's good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect to him. And God's working it towards his will. So where is Ruth? Where do we find it? Well, um, we find the book of Ruth written in a time of judges. And uh, the time of the judges was a really dark time for Israel. It was roughly uh, 1,500 to 1,100 BC before Christ. And uh, we see actually Judges 21 verses 25 describes that time in quite a scary way. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did as, was, what, sorry, every man did what was right in his own eyes. It was a dark time in Israel. People did whatever they wanted. Disney tells us to follow our heart. The Bible says don't. <laughs> it's a bad idea. And uh, actually, that people were doing whatever they wanted. The people would sin. God would send calamity or nations to, to fight against them. The people would repent. They would turn and they panic back towards God. God would raise up judges to help them. And again and again, the people rebelled. He would deliver them again and again. And the story then zooms in to a single family. In chapter one, we're introduced to a Jewish woman called Naomi. And Naomi has a husband called Elimelech, and it was this time of famine. They lived in a place called Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread, but it was a time of famine, and there was no bread. So what did they do? They packed their stuff, and they took their two sons. Their two sons' names were, do you remember? Kilian and? 
What's the thing? Yeah, you got the other guy. <laughs> Killian and Malon. I think that's how he said, Malon or Malon or something like that. And these, uh, this family then goes to this land of Moab. And that should be interesting for us because Moab was a um, nation that was at enmity with Israel. They were the, the nation that actually throughout Israel's history had done a number of things that it, you would actually cause the Israelites to go, don't go, go anywhere, but don't go there. And, um, and essentially the Moabites were these people who were known for their idol worship their despicable practices of worship. And they, it was, I'm sure, came as a bit of a shock if people heard where Elimelech and Naomi were going. And so they go to this land of compromise, essentially. They go and they compromise, and off they go to Moab, and they start off a life there. And very, very quickly, disaster strikes. Elimelech dies, and so does Naomi's two sons. And she's left with these two daughters-in-law, these Moabites that their, her sons had married. And so it's Naomi and then a one daughter-in-law called Orpah. I've been having to practice not say Oprah every time. I'm like, Naomi and Oprah, of course, but it's, that's not the case. And, uh, and then a young lady called Ruth. Both of them Moabite, Moabite, Moabitesses. There we go. I was like, Moabitesses. That's not even a word. There we go. And there's still famine, but she hears that there is food back in Israel. And so what do they do? destitutes with nothing, they go back, they return. And she, what she does actually is she says to her daughters-in-law, don't follow me, don't come. It would be better for you that you didn't. You are Moabites. You are, you are actually, you're, you, you won't be favored. You're foreigners. You're not part of this Israel tribe. And so um, Orpah hears her out and actually goes back to the, uh, her family. And then Ruth says this incredible thing, this declaration of faith. And actually, it's the declaration of the beginnings of her faith in Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. And she says this to Naomi, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And so like a prodigal daughter, Naomi and Ruth, they come back to Bethlehem, back into Israel, and uh, they, they cause the town to be get stirred. Essentially, the people, was this Naomi? Could that be Naomi? They're probably asking questions, where's Elimelech? Where are their sons? Who's this person perhaps with them? But is this Naomi? And Naomi kind of gives us a little look into where she is spiritually and emotionally at that moment. She gives us a bit of a, a peek into her diary, as it were. And she says this thing to them, these people in Ruth 1 verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For all that has happened, um, uh, sorry, uh, for the Almighty has dealt with me very bitterly. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Imagine that. Imagine saying that to the people of God. People are like, hey, it's Naomi. Don't call me Naomi. And then she out comes this revelation actually of who, where she is right now. And she is a far cry from the blessed people that God calls his people to be. Again and again in the Old Testament, he talks about blessing his people. That nations would be drawn actually to the blessing of God and the hand of God on his people. But she seems to be a far cry from that. And maybe even this morning, just a side thought, maybe even this morning as you're sitting here, maybe you can relate more to Naomi than you would like to admit. And maybe you're sitting there going, why has the Lord afflicted me? I think the book of Ruth is for you. And so we're going to look for this thing called providence. We're going to look for the care and the control of God in this story. And we're going to place ourselves in it too and allow God to minister to us there. And so verse 24, as Nick finished off last week, and the Ruth chapter 1 finishes off, finishes off with this exciting thing. It says, and they, 
So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Somehow, miraculously, there is a harvest. There is food in the famine, and it's amongst God's people, and God's going to do something with these young ladies, or young and old lady, I suppose, um, and he's going to do it here. And so we get to look at that. So somehow, somehow there's a harvest in Bethlehem, even in the famine, and there's a sense of something that's about to go down. Are you ready for Ruth chapter 2? Okay, so something glorious, something of the providence of God is about to happen. There's a glimmer of hope, and we learned from last week. I just thought I'd throw this in. I was listening and reading, and really I've had such a joy looking at different commentaries on Ruth chapter 2. And one person puts it like this, setting up Ruth chapter 2. He says this, what we learned from Ruth 1 is that God sovereignly ordains sorrowful tragedy to set the stage for surprising triumph. Can I read that again? God, God sovereignly ordains sorrowful tragedy to set the stage for surprising triumph. In the moments when God seems furthest from us, it may be that he is laying the foundations for the greatest displays of his faithfulness to us. And so Ruth chapter two comes along. One commentator, when they start off this chapter, they write this, and here he is. <laughs> that's, that's how they start off their commentary, talking about this man who we're gonna learn about today called Boaz, and that sets your heart a flutter just thinking about it, I'm sure. Anyway, Ruth number one says, Ruth 2 verses 1, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. What did the person say in their commentary? And here he is. Straight away, Ruth 2, we're introduced to this person, an important person. What's interesting is that phrase, a man of, uh, it says there, a man of standing can actually be interpreted in multiple different ways. It can be meaning he's a worthy man. It can mean that he's a man of wealth. There's wealth, there's possessions. It could mean that he is a man of valor or a chief member of his family. You know, like those people in your family that just run things? They're like, they're, if they're there, things are sorted. There's order. You know what I'm saying? He's a chief in his family. What is something of what that means? But any way that we look at it, he is a man of influence and a man of character, and he is the centerpiece to the story. Actually, we think the book of Ruth is about Ruth, but it's actually about Boaz. And, and there's a reason for that, which we'll explore more and more today. And then we shift the story back to Naomi and Ruth, verse two. And Ruth, the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. And the reality is, is that they were poor. They were destitute. They were widows. They had nothing. And so what they were going to do was they were going to go pick up the leftovers after the harvest, which I'm sure many of you know. But what's possibly even more beautiful is that God had ordained earlier on in the periods of history of his people in Leviticus 19 verses 9 to 10, he instructs them something. He says to his people to follow this law that they should leave the margins of their fields unharvested. And what they drop on the ground, they should leave it there. Why? For who? For the poor, for the widow, for the vulnerable. It seems as though God, all those many years ago, had a picture in mind of setting up and placing things in position so that Ruth would meet this man called Boaz. That's providence. It's the control and the care of God in ways that they might not have known at the time, but looking back, we can say, just like David, surely goodness and mercy have followed me. We see the providence of God even here. God had built into the fabric of the society of his people that the poor and the vulnerable would be taken care of. That's something of who God is, something that we're gonna learn of his character. So this is hard work, 
though. It's stooping, it's bending, it's picking up stalk by stalk. It's to glean, it's, it's difficult, backbreaking work. It's work in the sun, hour after hour. But Ruth was willing to put in, sorry, Ruth was willing to put in the effort. She shows us something. She's a woman of enterprise. She's a woman of agency. She's a woman who's not afraid to work hard. And I think not only are we gonna look at the beautiful unfolding story of salvation and God's gospel and good news to us this morning, but we're also gonna learn some things about work. We're gonna learn something about actually what does God expect from his people? How should we represent him in the world? And we learn something of that from Ruth. She's willing to put in the effort. She's not afraid to invest her strength and her time into getting the job done. She is not afraid of hard work, as we'll see later. And we can learn something from this Ruth. She doesn't just talk about working hard. She actually does it. <laughs> I love that. Have you ever spoken to someone and they're like, how are you doing? I'm busy. That's all you get, I'm busy. But she's not all talk, this Ruth. She's actually out there to do it. And she's willing to go out and actually make a plan for her and Naomi so that they have food. Verse three. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to who? Boaz, come on. And there he is. You know what I'm saying? As it turns out, he's working in a, she's working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. This, this fact keeps ch- being chucked in there. He's from the same clan as them. But we'll get them more just now. And, and the commentators, they write this. They say, what a coincidence, you know? The, the writer of Ruth, really, they, there's almost a smile as they write that, and as it turns out, you know? Because we, we in, in hindsight, can look and say, actually, There's providence there. God has somehow brought this Moabite woman. She could have chosen from hundreds, if not thousands of fields, but she ends up at the one that belongs to Boaz. And so (laughs) let's have a look at this wonderful thing that starts to unfold. There's no mistake. There's no random chance that she happened upon the field of Boaz. And we want to put ourselves into this story. We really do. And so actually, perhaps even looking at our own lives this morning, we would be able to say, God, I'm going to trust that there are many things that you are about, you are doing right now in my life. And as it so turns out, as it happens, one day I'm going to look back and go, that was your providence. And so it doesn't matter what we are going through right now, good or bad, crying or joy, doesn't matter because actually we serve a God of providence and a God who controls and cares for. He's in control of everything. So How much more so in our lives, if we look back, we would see this, the control and the care of God. Verse four, just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem. Mm, You know, like, oh wow, isn't that exciting? You know, like, it's almost like, it wasn't enough to tell us that he existed. It wasn't enough to tell us that the field belonged to him. The writer then tells us, it just so happens, just then, Boaz shows up on the scene as well. He arrives from Bethlehem and greeted the harvested, saying, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered in return. I love that. Just then, Boaz shows up. And you can tell a lot about a person by the first words that come out of their mouth. You really can. And the first words that come out of Boaz's mouth tell us that he's not just a man of wealth. He's not just a man of standing, but he's clearly a man of God. It's the first thing that comes out of his mouth, that the Lord be with you, blesses his workers, the people who are serving him in his field. Certainly he's a man of standing, but we get an impression that, of how he relates to his workers. And he's well-liked, and he seems to conduct business in a righteous way. I know it's a lot to take from a single phrase, but it's just allow us to immerse ourselves in the story a little bit. I don't, I don't think the, if the workers didn't like him, I don't think they would reply, the Lord bless you, you know, like, or, like, or angrily. I think that there's genuineness to that. 
So you can tell a lot about a man by how he treats others, especially those who are beneath him, for lack of a better way of putting it, especially how he treats those who work for him. And if we look at Boaz, he starts off by blessing. He starts off by, by actually invoking the, the blessing of God upon these people. And that says something about a man. Clearly, Boaz takes his faith to the office with him. You know what I'm saying? And so a good question for us. And I asked the same question of the youth on Friday. So guys, a bit of a flashback. But what would your closest friends or closest people in your life say about you? If they had to write about who you were at work, who you were at home, who you were in your private and public moments, what would they write as the story of your life? Because we see something of a flash into Boaz's life. But what would be said about us? What would be said about the things that come out of our mouth? Perhaps the things, the way we treat others. It's a really good thing to contemplate over. What would be said about you and me? Maybe, just maybe, God also wants to show us something in this account of Ruth and Boaz about godly and righteous work. Like, not just in how we do it, show, Ruth showing us the effort, the willingness to put in the sweat, but actually Boaz, how to work well with others, how to treat others better, those sorts of things. Verse 5, Boaz asks the overseer of the harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? Now, again, the commentators, I'm, I'm going to just take my information for them. They go, who is that? <laughs> they they um, take a moment and say, Boaz, it's, he's, he's inquiring because it's almost like, who is that? Now, there's no clear indication that romance is beginning. That's chapter three. That's coming. But, uh, but in chapter two, there's this thing we get about Boaz, which is this. He notices people. He actually sees people. He notices that this woman is not someone that he knows, and she's in his field. And I think that tells, again, a lot about the character of a person. Do we notice people? around us? Do we notice those who are um, the, the ones that society typically marginalizes? Are we the ones who actually carry something of the heart of God? Because think about the parable that Jesus told, go out into the highways and the byways, I think Dave, you shared it this morning, and find all that you can find there and invite them in. You know, God clearly has a heart for those who are vulnerable and who are overlooked. So even here, Boaz sets himself apart. He asks, who is this? Boaz notices the poor are not nameless and faceless to him. And even in our society, often the overlooked and the ignored, what, what is Jesus trying to teach us about how he feels about the poor here? Verse six, the overseer replied and said, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, uh, oh, sorry, she said, it's like turning back to Boaz, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning until now, except for the rest in the middle, uh, it's, except for a short rest in the shelter. My reading betrays me today, friends. It's all good. So Boaz gets filled in a little bit. He gets filled in about this lady, Naomi, this, who is this? Who's this person who I don't know working in the field? And here's the thing. Um, Ruth has been under inspection. Actually, she's, people have been watching her. And even for us, what can we learn from this? We are actually under inspection. How we work, how we live, how we walk out our lives with God is actually under the inspection of others. People are looking to see what does it look like to serve God? What does it look like to put your faith in Him? Especially, I believe, in difficult situations. Especially when trouble and, and, and tragedy strikes. I think people watch with keen interest at our lives because they want to see, do these people who put their trust in the Almighty God, does it show? Is it real? So, at times, we don't actually know that people are looking, that we're being watched by others as we walk with God. Second thing that the, the um, person who oversees the, the people you're harvesting says is that she says, please. 
It sounds so silly to kind of take note of that, but she says, please. She's humble. She's not entitled. Um, she knows that actually she can work with dignity for the food. Um, she's not looking for a handout. She's actually saying, please. Like she understands that actually any good thing that she's going to receive there is going to be from the kindness of others. She understands that. And so she says, please. She's not an entitled woman. And even according to the law, Boaz and the other people owned fields, they should provide for the poor. She doesn't invoke that. She doesn't say, you owe me this. I'm the poor. That's me. I'm the widow. She, she's humble. And she's not, uh, she, she shows us something really amazing about being submitted. Let's say please more and more. We're owed no good thing. But actually Ruth teaches us that we can approach God and we can say, please, Lord. And we can approach others saying, please. So how about us? How about us? She knows that she is needy. Do we know that we are? Do we know that we are needy this morning, friends? Do we know that we are entirely dependent on the kindness of God for every day and everything all the time, every moment? There's a song written by a guy called Matt Mayer, and he, um, the song's called, oh Lord, I Need Thee. And, uh, and he writes, I'll just read you the verse in the chorus. He says, Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. I'll share with you verse two. When sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where your grace is found, that's where you are. And where you are, Lord, I am free. Holiness is Christ in me. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. Do we know our need this morning? We are Ruth. We are Ruth. We are needy. We even say, but my bank account is full. Oh, friend, if a bank account could save you. <laughs> and I'd say, oh, I have all the friends I could possibly ever need. Oh, but do you have a friend in Jesus? Like, we, we are needy friends. And actually, it's good that we know that. It's good that we come humbly before God and say, God, please. We know that from his kindness comes everything that we do need. Verse eight. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the woman who worked for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow after the woman. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and drink from the water jars that the men have filled. And uh, one commentator says that this is the most beautiful Old Testament pickup line. <laughs> I would not recommend using it. I don't know if it has the same clout anymore. But uh, here's the thing, is that Ruth encounters provision in the field of Boaz. She encounters uh, more than enough. She encounters protection. She encounters refreshment. Look at Boaz's way he addresses this poor woman, this woman who actually, she's a foreigner. She's constantly said, Ruth the Moabites. That's her identity. She doesn't belong to the promises and the, and the things of God. But how does he say, how does he address her? My daughter, kind, loving, undeserved, kindness towards him. My daughter, how much more does our Jesus look upon the great need of his people and say, my sons and my daughters, how much more than this man, Boaz? In Boaz's field, Ruth would find companionship. He says, stick with the other woman. She's going to find companionship there. In Boaz's field, Ruth would find protection. He says, have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? In Boaz's field, Ruth would find refreshment. He says, when you are thirsty, go and drink. 
It's this incredible thing. And, and isn't that so in the field of Jesus, if we can apply that field to our lives? When we are found in Jesus' field, our hearts can be so divided. Boaz has to instruct her and say, don't go to another field. He actually, it's, it's the one command that he gives her. Don't go to another field, stay here. And actually for us, is Jesus' field enough for you? Is it enough for you? Are you looking, you know? Can I find contentment and satisfaction somewhere else? No, no, stay in the field of God. Stay where he is. So, lost my place, wonderful. (laughs) Stay in the field, verse 10. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground and she asked him, here's the question, actually the question of this whole chapter. Why have I found such favor in your eyes? that you notice me, a foreigner? That's the question this morning, friends. And actually, it's the question for us. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I can't, I can't help myself in some ways. This morning, as we look at the, the pure goodness of Jesus towards us, we've sung about it this morning. As we look at it, I think that's the question. God, why have I found such favor in your eyes? I don't deserve it, not at all, but I found favor in your eyes. I'm a foreigner, Lord but you have called me in to your family. It's, it's you. And here's the thing. Grace meets humility in this moment. Boaz shows Ruth grace, and Ruth responds in humility. And may that be the story of our lives too. May grace meet humility. And you know what? Her response, you like, might say, well, bowing down to the ground, that's quite intense. But if you understand it, if you look at it in context where actually, if you think about it, she's a foreigner and that nation was at enmity with Israel and, and, and people knew who she was. They knew she was a foreigner. They knew that she was a Moabites. And still, Boaz shows her kindness. He, he says, actually, protection for you. He's, he doesn't have to. He says, you will be protected. I told them. On my word, you will be protected, you know? He actually, in a society where typically the woman would fetch the water for the men, he says, actually, the men have drawn water and it's for you. He flips it around and he shows her, un, like, un, what's the word? Unimaginable favor, actually. And that's why she bows down on the ground. She says that she realizes what this moment means. Have you ever come to that point in your Christian life, friends, where you can just stop and shake your head in disbelief and marvel at the grace of God? Have you ever had that? I hope that moment is this morning for some of us. And we can stop and say, wow, Lord, why have you shown me favor? How have I found favor in your eyes? That's why grace is so amazing. That's why grace is so amazing. Verse 11, Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband how you have left your father and your mother and your homeland and have come to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. What an incredible thing. Boaz had a clear understanding of where blessing flowed from. It does not flow from you and me. It flows from the Lord through us. He understood that. He, he didn't say, ah, but you've come. Truly, you are highly favored, young lady, because I am going to bless you now. That's not, he doesn't mention himself there once. He says this. He says, he says that um, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord. May you, the Lord repay you for what you have done. And the Lord in whose, under whose wings you've taken refuge. It's an incredible thing. There's something of a theology of blessing there that we actually need to understand. Actually, God 
privileges us with the ability to bless others. Because why? He's actually blessing them through us. And that's a privilege. It's not a thing of, oh, okay, Lord, are you seeing this? Are you seeing this? I'm, I'm releasing the finances, Jesus. No, you're not. He's released the finance to you so that it can go to someone else. Your time, your energy, your love, your care, all those things. So whatever way you can be a blessing, God is blessing others through you and me. And that's what Boaz is teaching us. This uh, incredible um, thing that uh, Boaz says, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, actually gets visited again in Psalm 57, verses one. It says this, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. I love that. Actually, in his, in his wings we take refuge. Let's jump to verse 13. May I continue to find favor in your eyes. It's like this beautiful interplay, almost of poetry between these two people because no one talks like this, you know what I mean, anymore? But they, they, they're almost like poetically speaking to one another and then Ruth responds and says, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. She says, you have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. Again, humility meets grace. Humility says, oh, I don't deserve the way that you're treating me. And actually, it seems, some commentators say that her response there silences Boaz, takes his words away. And, and then the story just jumps. It's almost like he has nothing more to say. He's like, who is this lady who responds with such humility to what is happening to her? And almost like, I think if we can agree that with such humility almost beckons more grace. It beckons more blessing. If someone responds in a way like that, you just want to bless them even more. And I think that that's something for us to learn from Ruth. May we be Ruth. May we be grateful. May we be full of humility. Just really see how good God is to us. So verse 14, at mealtime, oh, the first date, hello. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here. Ooh, <laughs> come over here, have some bread and dip it in the vinegar. Ladies, <laughs> look for a man. Unless if you're married, then look for nothing. <laughs> uh, but young ladies, rather. If you look for a man, he says, come over here and grab the bread and dip it in the vinegar. If there's vinegar and bread, you know you're in the right place. All right. So that just a little side, side note there to help us. But um, See, I got ahead of myself there. Let's come dip it in the vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain, and and she ate all that she wanted. She was satisfied. She ate her full, and she had some left over. Here's the thing. He invites her to lunch. He invites her to his table. He serves her as he offers her the bread. There's something straight away, almost like our, how can I say, our, our sense of smell for Jesus should be ringing over time here a little bit because he invites us to his table and he serves us at his table. The Lord of the harvest, which is exactly what's happening here, is serving her. That's what our Jesus does. Boaz is a picture of Jesus. The foreign woman is sitting at the table undeserved. Do you see it? That's us. We are Ruth. And so... We read that she ate and she was satisfied and she had some left. And so isn't it amazing that even for us, we can say, am I satisfied at the table of Jesus? Am I able to eat my full there? If we have not eaten our full and if we are not satisfied at the table of Jesus, then we don't know him, friends. We are not at his table. But if we have and we've eaten our full and there's more left over, there's abundance, then I think we are at the table of Jesus. So, She got more than she thought. Coming to Boaz by grace would yield more unexpected results. And so this begs the question for us, are we satisfied in Jesus? Are we satisfied being provided for as sons and daughters of God? Verse 15, as she got up to glean, 
So she gets back to work again. This girl, I can't stop her. Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves. Don't reprimand her. Even pull out some of the stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick her up. Don't rebuke her. And again, he's providing for her. Again, he's protecting her. By the law, Ruth had right to glean on the margins and things and glean the things left over. Boaz was going beyond just Um, just kind of mercy. He was showing her grace. He was showing her favor. And he's saying, actually, you can come amongst the sheaves. You can take from the bundles themselves. And you know what? You're not taking it for me. She's not harvesting so that it goes into Boaz's house. She's harvesting for her. She's getting more than she ever could have hoped. Boaz is showing her such kindness, such grace. And you might expect that God, because of his mercy, would find a way just to forgive us. But through the cross, he goes way beyond it and he finds a way to give us the gift of righteousness. God goes like Boaz above and beyond just mere mercy. And he goes into grace and favor and he shows us the more than enough, the abundance of belonging to him. That's why God's grace is so amazing. Verse 17, so Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. She kept going and kept going. She worked hard. You with me? She worked hard. And this little verse does, however, provide us with a second warning in this chapter. The first warning, or checkpoint rather, was when Boaz said, stay in the field. He said, stay in the field. Here in verse 17, we see Ruth's response to the graciousness of Boaz. She, she can see that Boaz is being kind to her, but she doesn't then lie back and say, well, then be kind. Just give me stuff. She doesn't. She understands the relationship of work. And, actually, and, she, and she understands that actually she can... Go hard at it. And as she does that, actually just more and more, she'll see the favor of God in in her life, the favor of God through this man, Boaz. And so I think there's two little things for us. One, stay in the field. Second thing, actually, um, I wrote it better here. She continues to work. Her amazement at the grace shown to her leads to action. Ephesians 1 ends off by telling us that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We We were called to work. So let's do it. Is that good? Great. Then, it carries on verse 17. Then she threshed out the barley that she had gathered. So she didn't just kind of gather and leave it. No, she threshes it out, threshes it out that she had gathered. It amounted to about an ephah. I think that's how you say it. Verse 18. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law said, how, saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over when she had eaten more than enough from lunchtime. She took a little, like, takeaway. It's pretty exciting. And she brings it for Naomi. And so a few things. First thing, Ruth processes the work. She takes it, and she finishes the job. I am the king of not finishing a job. <laughs> I often, like, there's currently half Two and a half trees, basically, semi-chopped up in my lawn that need to be finished. Ruth can teach me a thing or two because she finishes the job. (laughs) So go, Ruth. Um, She works all day. She finishes the job. And then she's tough. She carries all of this stuff back to town. How much is an ifa? Well, it's about 13 kgs worth of stuff, they say, plus minus 13 kgs. That's heavy. And she carries it all the way back to town after stooping and working all day. Respect, <laughs> respect for Ruth. She's done, she's done so well. And so here's the thing. Naomi sees, uh, she, she sees that it's more than enough. She sees that it's abundance. After having nothing, after knowing famine and desperation, she sees the abundance of God and supply in her life and now she is excited. And we see Naomi do something. We're gonna get to it now. But what she doesn't do, she doesn't praise Ruth. You'll see in the next verse. She doesn't go, Ruth, you're amazing. God has blessed me with you. Best daughter-in-law of all time and all those things. No, she doesn't. She praises the Lord. She knows where blessing comes from. 
praises the Lord. She says this, her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. It's almost like she knows that it's more than what is expected. It's more than enough. And I want that for my life. I just, maybe a little side note to your friends. I want that for my life, and I hope you do too, where there's a spiritual abundance on our lives that people look and say, which field have you been in? Who have you been gleaning from? Who, who, who is it? Which, which man, which person has shown kindness to you? you know? And we'd be able to say, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus has shown me kindness. And so I want that, and I hope you do too. So carries on in verse 19. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is, almost like leaves it right at the end, Boaz. And you can imagine like the fireworks go off, and there's like this moment of like, the, you know, the choir swells. It's like, it's a big moment. So I hope you see it too. Verse 20. <laughs> So how does she respond? The Lord bless him. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers or kinsman redeemers. We're gonna visit a few of those things there. But the first thing is, how different is this Naomi from the call me Mara? The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. To suddenly she's invoking blessing of the Lord all over the place on this person. It's like, the Lord bless him. The Lord bless him. There's this clear, she sees the providence of God in her life. May we do the same. May we be a people who actually have eyes to see. You know, eyes, because we can wander around blind as anything, not actually seeing the goodness of God. But she can see it. This woman who was bitter, this woman who was destitute, sees it and she calls it out for what it is. And she says, the Lord bless him. She sees it exactly for what it is. And she calls it this word kindness. Kindness, which means loving kindness, grace, mercy. She recognizes this turn of events as the hand of God, and she is quick to name God as the source of the blessing. She once called herself Mara, but now she recognizes the providence around her. She is quick to see it. I want to be quick to see the providence of God. I hope you do too. Then she adds in this detail, and we're starting to bring this thing to her land. She adds in this detail, she says, here's a kinsman redeemer. And, and there's something about, I know Nick explained it last week, so I'm not going to revisit it too much, but one person said it beautifully, which I thought I'd share with you. It's a guy called Roy Hessian, outlines three requirements for a kinsman redeemer. What, what, what actually allows you the ability to come and redeem and rescue a member of your clan or your kin? First one is you have to have the right to redeem, and this was given because you are related to them. And I'm going to just jump ahead and go, Jesus has the right to redeem us because he came in the incarnation and became like one of us. He put on flesh and he became, actually gets the right to become our kinsman redeemer. The second requirement is that they need the ability to redeem. They can't be poor like the poor. They can't be destitute like the destitute. They have to have the ability. Christ has the ability to redeem. Number three, finally, they have to be willing to redeem. They have to want it. And Christ is when he comes and tells disciples, I came to seek and save the lost. Jesus is our true and better Boaz. He is our kinsman redeemer. Verse 21, then Ruth the Moabite said, even, he even said to me, so it's almost like she's picking up in the excitement. She gets it too. She's like, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting my grain. Stay with them until the end of the season, essentially. Stay every day in the field and glean and glean and glean. And here's the thing. I'm just going to read what I put down here. Firstly, Boaz was gracious. He says, pull out from the bundles of grain for her to glean from. But then he goes further and he allows her to glean for the whole season right next to his actual workers. 
So you had the workers who were paid for by Boaz to glean, and then there was Ruth working right alongside them, and everything she grabbed, she was allowed to keep for herself. She didn't plant the wheat, and she didn't play any part in ensuring that there was adequate growth. She simply got to reap the benefits for herself. And it's a picture of our inheritance in Jesus. Jesus, we didn't plant and we didn't make it grow, but God gives us blessing and favor as an inheritance in his son, Jesus. Verse 22, Naomi said to, oh, sorry, I'm jumping like a crazy person. Oh, yes, yeah, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go. <laughs> I'm like, yes, Ruth, um, you should definitely do it. It would be good for you, my daughter, to go with the woman who work with him because in someone else's field, excuse me, you might be harmed. Verse 23, so Ruth stayed close to the woman of Boaz and gleaned until the barley and wheat harvests were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. And that's how it ends. Chapter two just ends there. Like, this is what happened. She, she, she works, the season finishes, and then she lives with her mother-in-law. And you almost want to be like, and then? <laughs> Chapter three is coming up next week and you should come so that you actually get what happens next. But a few final little things, friends, and then we're going to call this to a close. I, just, I, I call this part what we need to remember. So I'm going to quickly run through what that is. The characters of this story are ultimately for us to see the character of God. That's the reality of Ruth, is that we, are, we look through this story and it is our privilege to see Jesus in every page as well as ourselves. And so let me explain a little bit of what I mean by that. Well, is there a Jewish redeemer here from the tribe of Judah who possesses the finest of qualities? Yes, there is. Boaz is a type of Jesus. He is a, Jesus is the true and better Boaz, as we've said. Let's take this picture and let's apply it to us. So a few thoughts. Firstly, let's learn how to give love. And let's learn how to show kindness from Boaz. Boaz, if we look at him, he seeks and he treats the outcast as his own family. It's an amazing thing. Ruth was a Moabites again and again. It tells us that. But Boaz was looking for the outcast. He shelters the, the weak under his wings, so to speak. He shelters her. He serves her at his table. And the Lord of the harvest serves the hungry, and he showers the needy with his grace. Boaz is a type of Jesus. Jesus does all of those things. He looks for the outcast. He shelters the weak under his wings. He serves them at his table. The Lord of the harvest serves the hungry. Yes, he is. And he showers the needy with his grace. That's Jesus. Jesus does that for us. And, and actually, friends, a little side thought here, but actually, like, we should be Boaz to others. We should be. I think there's a call for us to be like that to other people. To follow that thought, the purpose of Boaz's concern for the poor is supposed to show us God's concern for the poor. That, that, that's part of the purpose of Boaz. And so we see that Boaz is the immediate provider for Ruth in this story, but ultimately God is the ultimate provider for the poor, isn't he? And Boaz even recognized that Naomi recognizes that God blesses others through us. We are also... Maybe just one last thought, which I really thought was quite compelling that I came across. I'd love to share it with you. This guy called David Platt says this thing. He says, God has ordained his people to be a radical demonstration of care for the poor. God has ordained his people to be a radical demonstration of care for the poor. And he says this, do people walk away from you and say, wow, God clearly has great concern and care for the poor. Are we a visible demonstration of a God who cares for the poor and the vulnerable? May it be so. It's a very... Very important thoughts, I think. And we are Ruth in this story. Yes, we are. We are Ruth in this story. He's called us by our name. We are foreigners and outcasts outside of the promises of God, and yet he has sheltered us under his wings in Jesus. He's brought us to his table. He has served us at his table. 
The Lord of the harvest is serving us. And that doesn't, if that doesn't blow our minds, then I don't think we know God. Well, like Ruth, we're called to stay in the field. And if you've been wandering around, friends, to other fields, if you've been wandering around to other places looking for fulfillment, looking for the next, I don't know, the next high, the next thing, come back to his field. And if you've never been in his field, run to his field today. Last takeaway. God always gives us what we need, and he always gives it to us at the right time. It's providence. God is the God of providence. We're going to see it throughout this beautiful story as we finish off. This chapter teaches us a theology of work, good work, godly work. It teaches us to, to um, not be shy of it, but to marvel at grace and kindness shown to us and turn it into action. Get on with the good works that Christ sets us apart to do. So, what a contrast this chapter 2 has been. <laughs> Such a difference. We, we, we look in the book of Judges and it's chaos. But then in the book of Ruth, we see something different. We see that the Lord is working in and preserving his people. That's providence, friends. In the chaos of South Africa right now, the Lord is working in and working on behalf of his people. That's providence. He is the God of providence, the God in control, the God who shows care. It's the Lord who stops the famine. It's the Lord who binds Ruth to Naomi in love. It's the Lord who preserves Boaz for Ruth. Ruth does not just happen upon Boaz's field, and the light of God's love has finally broken through. It's a beautiful sound. The light of God's love has finally broken through, bright enough for Naomi to see. So let's put ourselves in this story. Let's do it. Let's put ourselves in this story together, and maybe, just maybe, if we see God's kindness to us, friends, for what it really is, we'll be like Ruth, and we'll fall on our faces, and we'll say, why have you shown such favor to me? Amen. Amen. Thank you.